Uh, good afternoon, good early evening, everyone. My name is Jonathan Darbush, and I'm uh, culture editor of the New Statesman magazine, which is the proud media sponsor of the um, media partner of the LSE Literary Festival. Um, welcome to this event on the future of publishing um, in a digital age. It's quite a moment for the publishing industry, and we have um, three speakers today who are going to lead us through the numerous challenges, I think, that face traditional and non-traditional publishing um, in the early 21st century. Let me introduce to you our guest starting on my right, Claire Squires, who's director of the Stirling Centre for International Publishing and Communication at the University of Stirling. Um, and in the spirit of our commitment to new technology, I'm going to give you her Twitter handle, which is at Claire Squires. Um, the hashtag for tonight's well, in, indeed, for the week's events is um, LSE LitFest. Uh, sitting next to Claire is Damon Zucker. He's publisher of Scholarly and Online Reference at Oxford University Press. Um, he tells me he doesn't have a Twitter handle or there is a dormant uh, Twitter feed somewhere. Um, so we need to encourage Damon to um, <laughs> get with the programme, so to speak. Um, and <coughs> on my far right is Ben Galley. He's an author and indie publisher. He's at Ben Galley. Uh, Galley with me. Um, and I think Claire and Ben, I'm not sure about Damon, but have uh, books of theirs that are on sale at the bookstall um, outside. There are copies of the New Statesman circulating. If you haven't picked one up, please do. Um, it's a rattling good read. Um, let me say a bit about the, the format uh, for this afternoon's event. Each speaker is going to speak for between five and eight minutes, and I'll enforce the um, time limit brutally. Um, and then we will open the uh, event questions. I mean, there are so many of you, and I'm sure you've all got um, lots of questions. I mean, it's, this is um, such an important uh, time for publishing, and I'm sure there's lots for us to talk about. Um, the event is going to be podcast, and I think the podcast will be available on the LSE's website um, in the next couple of days. Can I ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent? That's an interesting technological shift, actually. We're not, um, we're not encouraged to ask people to turn their phones off anymore, because you will be tweeting, so just turn them to silent. Um, you know the hashtag. Um, I'll talk about the uh, setup for Q&A after we've heard from our speakers, and let me introduce Ben Galley. Hi there. Can everyone hear me? Is this working? No? Failed how about now? Hello? That working? It's off mute. No? Yes? Hey, there we go. <laughs> technology. Well, <laughs> um, speaking of technology, um, I'm going to start uh, with my perspective as an author and indie publisher. Um, and I believe the roots of why I'm here today uh, are in technology. Um, it's changed the entire publishing industry from my point of view, and as an author, it's enabled me to actually sit here today. Um, for instance, you know, some people call technology, uh, well, we all have many different names for it, you know, we call it, obviously, be it the internet, be it uh, digital printing, whatever. Some people label it as a liberator, uh, myself included, or an enabler, whereas some kind of sit on the other side of the line and call it a usurper, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of taken down the traditional industry, it's, it's ruining uh, physical bookstores. Uh, it's basically you know, bad news all round. Um, for me, I'm kind of straddling the line. Um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities out there for me as an author. And for instance, you know, as I've said, 
Um, it's the reason I'm sat here today. For instance, writing and editing. There are platforms out there that enable um, collaborative writing at the moment. Uh, enables me to edit my book you know, with the help of, of these, uh, these people out there and via these platforms, which I couldn't do without the internet. Um, for instance, my books, um, which some of you might have already seen, uh, the covers were crowdsourced, which I wouldn't have been able to do that, um, you know, with that, again, technology. Um, the best thing, to be honest, <laughs> about being a, an indie publisher uh, and an, in, an indie author is the fact that my royalties are kind of in uh, almost, uh, you know, stratospheric compared to a traditional author. You know, I get 70 to 80 percent of my sales, um, comparable to kind of in between 10 and 20 for a traditional author, um, which again is all at the behest of, te of technology and the ability to actually have a product with almost negligible unit cost. Um, so that's something you know that's, yeah, that has actually drawn so many authors <coughs> into it. Um, you know, and then talking about kind of you know where we go with future technologies such as apps. You know, what will the book be? Um, you know, and that's something that brings out my inner geek and really excites me. You know, and um, I, you know, I hope we cover a lot of that today. Um, but you know, we're, authors are now turning from you know, not just storytellers. Um, well, we are. We will always remain storytellers, but we will change from kind of book you know, writers and, and typing uh, people to you know, uh, creators of multimedia <coughs> content, transmedia content, who will be either you know, learning to use uh, you know, computer programs to, to create apps. We will become graphic designers in our spare time, you know, become multi-skilled beasts. Uh, and that's, again, all because of technology. Um, the other side of the line of that, you know, uh, uh, the line I spoke about first, is the fact that, you know, at which point do I start being worried uh, instead of excited about this technology uh, and the changes that it's causing? Um, for instance, self-publishers are everywhere at the moment. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of oversaturation in the market, and it's actually kind of ruining my... I say ruining. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a strong word. <laughs> it's... It's causing trouble for a lot of authors out there who do kind of put a lot of time and effort to making their books professional uh, to a high standard, um, just purely because of the, the, the amount of low-quality uh, books out there at the moment, just because it's so easy to publish. Um, I actually did a, I think it was a talk at a uni last year. We published a book in four minutes. The book was just a random, you know, just a one-page document. Could it be called a book? Technically not, but... Um, we published it four minutes, and you know we could technically sell it on Amazon within that time. So, if you know we can do that, anyone can do it, and that's the problem at the moment. Um, and I'd also say you know it's we're all at the behest of Amazon as well. Most of us authors, so I'd say there's probably 70 to 80 percent of authors out there are e-published. 70 to 80 percent of them are um, on Amazon. So you know we're at the, you know in the grip of the mighty giant Amazon at the moment. If they change their their policies and their terms and conditions. That's you know, potential millions that kind of uh, have to just follow the way. We don't have much of a choice about it. So I kind of straddle the line, and technology has you know, a lot of opportunities in the future for me, um, but it also kind of niggles at the back of my mind with a few you know, aspects as well. So um, that's my view from an author. Thanks, Ben. So that's technology is it a liberator or a usurper? I mean, I'm sure that's a question we'll come back to in discussion. Claire? Um, thanks very much. Can you hear me all okay? <coughs> Yep, <laughs> it's like maybe too, too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I wanted to um, come up with one analogy to start off with and then a couple of truisms about publishing in the digital age and picking up along the way a few items which have been in the news over the past uh, few weeks, months or so. Um, the first one, you're going to start thinking, am I in the wrong room? Because it's actually to do with a completely different industry, the gas industry. So in the last week, uh, British <coughs> Gas announced an 11% uh, rise in its profits. 
to uh, the great frustration of the vast majority of us consumers at this kind of continual rising in prices and rising in profits at the same time when you know, everybody's suffering, rather, under the economy. A once-nationalised industry now kind of really uh, screeching out as much profit as it possibly can. What can consumers do about that? Well, not very much, to be honest. You can switch. That doesn't help us very much. You can't go out and extract the gas yourself. That's impossible. Um, You can protest a bit. You can maybe ask to see if the government could do anything about it, but certainly with the current kind of free market-oriented government we have, not very likely to happen. Now, I'm not going to speculate much further about the energy industry. It's obviously something I know very little about, but I wanted to kind of use that as a sort of framing analogy or anti-analogy for thinking about the publishing industry. Um, I said just there that maybe we could ask for government intervention in uh, prices in the gas industry. But very interestingly, in the past week and in the past few months, something very interesting is happening in the world of academic publishing. Um, Obama's administration has said this week that they will mandate that publicly funded research in the States becomes open access. Um, The Finch report here in the UK has said the same thing as well, and RCUK, Research Councils UK, are also saying that publicly funded research should be made openly accessible to all. Um, Something very interesting happened there. At the moment, as, as, as many of you will know, but some of you perhaps less aware, the work that we do as academics is published in journals, which are then brought back by our libraries at very high cost, at extremely uh, advancing high cost at the moment as well, which is one of the the issues, particularly when we as academics put lots of free labour into their production. So this leads me to my first truism about the publishing industry, that you often hear people saying in the publishing industry that we add value. Um, Publishers add value, and certainly as someone who trains students to become publishers in the future, this is absolutely what I would say. There's a huge amount of stuff that happens in between the author and the reader, though, as Ben's just said, actually, the ways in which you can get to the reader are made much easier now because of digital technologies. But nonetheless, there's the processes of editing, design, production, marketing, sales, distribution, are all there, that adding value. Um, In the digital age, metadata, a very strong understanding of metadata, analytics, in academic publishing, incredibly sophisticated digital systems for the delivery and discoverability of our research. But I'm definitely a gamekeeper turned poacher, and I do mean it that way around. I used to be a publisher. I'm now an academic who teaches students to be publishers in the open access debate. The cost is too high for us to have to buy back our research. It should be made available to us. I always find it a bit of an irony when um, academic and STM publishers say to me, you should train your students to work in the academic publishing industry because that's where the profits are the highest. That's where it's the part of the industry that makes the most money. And I always find that slightly galling as an academic to hear that. I think there's something slightly peculiar there. Um, Unlike the consumers of British Gas, we do have as the consumers who are also the producers, opportunities to to intervene quite strongly in that debate. And obviously lots of that's happening right now in terms of how we think about what we're doing with our content. There's a huge amount of discussion, obviously, about how that might happen, and I'm not going to go into that now, and I'm sure it might come out later. 
But I want to turn now to the second truism. And this is a truism that you often hear the publishing industry saying in terms of, I suppose, some of the real challenges that can be perceived in the digital age. That we are very good at dealing with content. That we have the stories. That we know how to deal with stories. Almost in a kind of quite privileged way. And I suppose that's something I'd want to interrogate slightly as well. Publishers traditionally have done that. Um, And certainly, if you think of legacy publishing, which is the term for traditional publishing models, um, in a positive way rather than a negative way it's sometimes talked about, actually you can see that backlists and copyright and licensing means actually they do have a lot of content and a lot of stories that they can deal with and exploit. But I think, as as Ben just showed you, there's a huge amount of other ways that you can access content, that you can produce content, that you can make content so very, very quickly. All of the free content that's out there, some of it's rubbish, some of it's brilliant, you know, and everything in between. And, of course, as well, Amazon. Um, And if you want to think of it in this way, one massive pipeline through which uh, the vast majority of us get our paid-for content (coughs) digitally. Um, No doubt about that. Interestingly, through deflationary rather than inflationary pricing. So it's kind of, again, the opposite way around to how the gas industry might work. They're excellent customer services, availability, the long tail, etc., And in the past week or so, more developments in terms of Amazon working directly with literary agents to publish e-books, working directly with authors, obviously, as Ben's just referred to as well. Um, And an interesting announcement in the past couple of weeks about Amazon having received a patent from the US government to uh, sell second-hand e-books. A very strange concept, which puts us in some kind of Alice in Wonderland-esque kind of territory there. Um, But there's a continual, through doing things like that, through thinking about how things like that might work, pressure on the traditional structures (coughs) of publishing. So, uh, will publishing survive in the digital age? Yes, it will. We're hungry for content. How that content will get to us, how we can produce that content ourselves, is already radically being reshaped. Thanks very much, Claire. Um, Damien? I find myself in the awkward position of being the defender of the industry, (laughs) Uh, but um, here it goes. I mean, I I think that um, publishers, uh, like myself and everyone in the industry, thinks of what we're doing as a service to um, authors and to readers. And so just first some high-level... Uh, kind of macro level trends that we're thinking about when we think about keeping that uh, service relevant in the digital age. The first is, and there's lots of discussion about this within academic and research contexts, is how do you remain uh, relevant when so much content is being published and consumed every year to the point at which uh, the ways people are reading are changing. And there's an in- interesting uh, piece of or statistic or figure, a piece of data in the Finch report about how across the past 20 years, um, uh, the typical academic is reading um, uh, 80% more articles than they were in the 70s. And so in a generation, somehow people are finding time to, to do their, uh, the research that they do and consume so much more information. Reading habits must be changing for this to be happening. And so 
uh, as publishers, we're thinking about how do we remain relevant when reading's changing. But it's not just reading habits that are changing, but research habits that are changing as well. And looking at a recent uh, Pew Center report of, that looked at um, education in the primary school level at U.S. schools, 65% of teachers said they thought the Internet was making their students more self-sufficient when they did research. And this is because these teachers were equating research with Googling. And what's interesting about that is actually that trend of uh, beginning your research by putting a term into a search box is what people are doing at all levels and not just at a kind of younger generation. It's, uh, and so in the sciences, we see people using the um, abstract and indexing services. In the humanities, many people are reporting starting in Google Scholar to kind of cut out some of the white noise. But it's uh, one place or another, people are starting within that uh, search box, and that's important to publishers. And last, uh, which is very important to academic publishers, is to the internationalization of scholarship in general. And uh, it's, it was easy when we were focusing on national uh, or markets or local markets, publishing for um, academic communities that were in one area, but uh, we are now increasingly needing to publish to a wider audience. The number of PhDs in, uh, as of 2011 that were offered in China has, um, is the, uh, well, to put it another way, China is now the largest producer of PhDs in the world. Uh, Chinese authors account for 17% of the global total of articles published in 2010. This is a huge amount of research that's taking place, and uh, as publishers, what we do is connect authors to uh, readers and connect communities together, and so we have to think about how, to, um, how our tools change in order to reach this broader audience. Um, in any case, those are just some, some sort of background context, and, but directly to what the, the question of what publishers do, because I think it's important in this conversation, and I feel a bit defensive about it, and so I'm just going to put it out there, what I think that we uh, do, because um, at the end of the day, I think the forgetting about what format the material is or what material it is that we're disseminating, what authors do is help or provide a service by connecting authors with readers. And so we do that by distributing materials in many different formats. At Oxford, we're publishing our ebooks through 20 different ebook retailers, from Kindles to Moby Pocket Books to more obscure kind of niche distributors for textbooks like No, K-N-O. In any case, this takes a lot of learning on our part. We have to take content and put it into different uh, formats to deliver it in these ways. We, so we're putting a lot of effort into making that connection. We also are putting effort into, we've talked about Amazon, we've done experiments. How can we change the copy of our books to make them more uh, discoverable and thus more purchased through uh, Amazon? Can we change the kind of rules that we all learned getting into publish, publishing about back cover copy to increase that? Um, and we are finding some success for it. Oxford and many other publishers do as well, has a uh, department that's devoted to discoverability of the scholarship we publish and increasing the uh, SEO of that material. These are new skills that we're learning to be uh, to continue on with that service. I mean, what's interesting to me, listening to trade publishers and how excited they are about uh, social media, is that uh, it allows them to connect with very specific um, audience communities for an author. And for academic publishers, those networks or those communities already exist um, and predate us. If you work on concept ethics, 
the other specialists within the uh, kind of core group that work on concept that's already known to each other. You don't actually need the publisher for that communicating within that academic core. But what the uh, publisher does is help reach outside of that core to other disciplines and to um, increasingly to other countries. And so, uh, and a piece of that, I think, and this is the second thing that publishers do, is gatekeeping. And uh, I hate saying it because in these kinds of discussions, it's uh, seen as an evil. But actually, gatekeeping, validation, and filtering is an important thing. We spend a lot of time doing it. And it's not uh, to be conflated with um, judging the... Uh, efficacy of the scholarship or the correctness of the scholarship, because actually that's what scholarship is, and we're not going to reproduce the science to make sure that the argument is correct. What we do is we get a reader's report, the reader's report says, well, this argument's good, but I wouldn't publish this manuscript unless the author does these three things to it to uh, improve the <coughs> argument. We put that back into it. Could that be done elsewhere? Maybe, and I'll come back to that at the end. But in any case, we're helping to uh, filter, which becomes increasingly important in the context where that periphery is much larger. Uh, so I think these two aspects of what publishers do will persist beyond any changes in technology delivery or the type of content that gets published. So uh, let me just end with a few predictions about the not-so-distant future and what uh, publishers will be doing. The first is, and I'm just to get it out of the way, that... Um, we publish a lot of material in print and sell a lot of material in print, and there's no, uh, I don't expect any change in that anytime soon. And so our digital publishing is just something new. It will be part of the future, but uh, for this foreseeable future, print is a very big piece of it. But um, digital is interesting, and it represents changes within the industry, and so these predictions are about that. First of all, um, uh, as Claire has indicated, and as these recent debates in the U.S. and U.K. Uh, are showing, open access will be a bigger piece of the picture, and um, publishers are actually uh, less resistant to this than they may feel, than it may seem. I think, in general, publishers are resistant to the ways in which um, uh, open access is talked about being implemented, but in general, the concept is not one that I think publishers need to be afraid of or should be afraid of and eventually will not be pushing away from uh, I think there will be new forms of delivery that will not def depend on different proprietary systems. It's impossible to, where you can't trade between them. There's got to be, uh, so that if you buy something on a Kindle, you can only read it on a Kindle. There's got to be, that's going to break as there's uh, one or more of these devices becomes a leader, or as the devices become less important and the delivery is <coughs> sharing is through our own devices. Uh, I think it's likely that in scholarly publishing and in general publishing, people will be able to buy um, uh, smaller chunks of content. And so, for instance, there's nothing to stop a publisher from being able to offer just one chapter rather than the full mm -hmm. book. We've seen it, or in academic publishing, we might offer one figure or a paragraph uh, what someone needs. There's no barrier technologically to being able to do this, and if that's what people would find useful, we should offer it. We've seen it happen, and it's a slightly different context, but we've seen it happen in the music industry where people can buy... Um, uh, albums, but will also buy single um, songs. That's what they want to do, and so um, music publishers have facilitated it. I think publishers are will have been investing in and will continue to invest in digital discovery, whether it's on Amazon or uh, on the open web. And I think scholarly publishers are going to get more involved in um, uh, uh, forms of digital 
gatekeeping. I, I couldn't think of a good way of putting this, but just to say there's so much information out there, and uh, what we can do as publishers is um, uh, build out from peer review to create recommendation services or different indexes, tools that scholars can use to help sort through information a week from the chat. I think the, the end of the day, um, uh, the question comes up, do, do we need publishers? Can scholars work around them? Can, um, can authors work around them when publishing their uh, non-scholarly work? I think the answer to that is um, probably, no, we don't need publishers, but to reproduce all the systems that publishers do to connect authors with um, readers means putting a, a large burden onto individual scholars and scholarly groups and why would they want to take on that burden when publishers' role is to serve in that way and to help in that way? And if there's an issue about um, uh, remuneration or other things like that, that should be separated out from that base service that authors want to be able, or publishers want to be able to provide. Anyway, I thought that might be a good ending point uh, to go with the discussion. Thanks very much, uh, Damon, for that um, strenuous defence of the um, <laughs> role of the traditional publisher. And, and I must say, for being brave enough to make some predictions that may turn out to be hostages to fortune. But we, um, uh, I'd like to ask the speakers a couple of questions before then throwing things open to you. Um, I saw a lot of writing and a lot of typing going on in the audience, so um, I suspect there'll be lots of questions. Um, Ben, I wonder whether you could pick up on something that Damon said about digital gatekeeping, because you talk quite um, interestingly about um, some of the deleterious effects of self-publishing, actually, um, and you describe the phenomenon of oversaturation. So it sounded to me as though you would agree that there is a digital gatekeeping, and that's, that's a very resonant phrase, I think, a digital gatekeeping role for publishers to play in the digital age. Mm. Um, I agree. I mean, gatekeeping for me is um, it's something that at first I was glad didn't exist in the self-publishing world. And I think the self-publishing, uh, the average self-publishing author will see gatekeeping as a you know, negative thing, see it as a, a reason why they might not be published or, uh, you know, basically, you know, as, as the name suggests, a gate in the way that they you know, are, are not allowed through. Um, so, I mean, self-publishing is, you know, at the very least the removal of that gate and of, of the gatekeeper. Um, but in a way, you know, being in the industry for uh, you know a couple of years, one will quickly see that actually mm-hmm. some sort of gatekeeper is needed. And to you know, there is a there are um, some terrible authors out there. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of um, rubbish escaping. Some of them published by publishers, obviously. That's not to say that you know, traditional authors, you know, are you know all perfect and, and producing you know, top-notch literature but we're now just seeing a huge amount of it coming from the self-publishing side because of the removal of this gatekeeper um, so the, what you know the, those of us um, who do try to achieve those higher uh, you know, echelons of, of perfection and, and quality uh, kind of then resent this removal of gatekeeper and find ourselves very turned around mm. but I think you know, to answer the question the gatekeeper is now the consumer uh, and now you're looking at kind of um, you know consumer curation reader curation uh, and that gatekeeper is now the success or failure of the book and it's kind of comes after mm-hmm. the fact that the face has changed or where it kind of falls in the publishing process. Uh, and I think the gatekeeper is now either everyone else who um, rates your book one star or five star mm-hmm. and it will slowly sink down the pile. So mm-hmm. I think it's more of a gradual gatekeeping now. Claire, you describe yourself as um, gamekeeper turned pension. What about the tr- role for traditional publishing? You talked about the publisher adding value. Um, can it, can a, p- a publisher still do that? In, yeah, in ab- ab- absolutely. And I think um, perhaps what I was kind of 
trying to say at the end, and I, you know, I sometimes think, am I doing myself out of a job here because I train students to be publishers? Or am I, you know, actually being very deceiving in doing that as well by saying, no, publishing shouldn't exist? I think all of those things that publishers have traditionally done, you know, and the editing function and the choosing mm. function are incredibly important things. I'm not, not undermining those at all. And I think also the skills, actually, you know, that Damon, that you were talking about as well, um, the new skills which are important in the digital age of, you know, discoverability, and they're co- very complex um, to do. You need, a, you need a lot of knowledge, you need a lot of skills, um, both technological skills, but also skills of how people want to find things, what it is they want to find, how it is to lead taste as well rather than follow it and I, I you know I agree I absolutely agree with Ben there about how we shouldn't throw away the notion of gatekeeping completely because I don't think the publishing function should always to be following taste it should be to lead it sometimes in good places as well um, so I think it's very important to to do that um, and I I would really very strongly want to argue for that continuing value and the importance of publishing Processes. I think the really mm. interesting question in the digital age, with regards to academic publishing, but also other areas as well, is where those publishing processes lie mm. with which organisation or set of organisations, with which individual or set of individuals, and consequently where the power and responsibility lies as well. You know, do we give it all to Amazon? Are we happy with that? Do we give it all to companies making really quite large profits, perhaps not compared to British gas, actually, but, you know, still pretty substantial. How does that value compare to the cost that we're paying for it as the authors or as the readers? Um, and I suppose they're, they're the kind of questions I'd, I'd want to ask about that. So, so, yes, I think publishing should be a value that's sustained, but we need to think really carefully about where we want it to, to lie. Damon, presumably there's not much there you'd... I would just say sufficient. that um, I, I, I don't think that publishers should have a monopoly on the dis- distribution of information by any means, and there should be, and they never have and won't, there should be as many channels as possible for people to communicate the ideas that they have. Publishers provide a service for some authors to help them reach a wider audience and to do different things, but we, uh, I just don't think we need to be the only game in town, but that doesn't mean that... Uh, shouldn't be there at all. And so I think that actually there's a... Um, it's, these are not either-or questions. They're questions about um, uh, scale and um, different types of outcomes and uh, desired outcomes. Just one last question before I open it to the audience, and that's Amazon. That was a, that was a word which appeared in each of your um, presentations, although I had the sense you were tiptoeing around um, criticising the great behemoth. Um, Rather, it's just a fact that you have to deal with, um, and it's, there's no getting around it. So you're dealing with them. Is that, is that how you feel? Like? I think it's really interesting. There's been an, uh, an effort by the big six publishers in the U.S. They've released a site called Bookish, which is yeah. their attempt mm-hmm. to distribute directly. And uh, they're using the same back-end uh, distribution networks they use to, to deliver books. They're not doing that directly, but it's a you know, website that they've created. And their pitch, I don't, you know... I, um, I think it's good to have other players and not just to have Amazon, although I think Amazon does a great service for books. And actually, when I started in publishing, people were very nervous that there weren't enough readers, that everyone was go- not going to be reading, and that this was the big issue. And there were lots of, ish- there were lots of initiatives for um, 
literacy and now there's no question that they're reading we're just worried they're not reading our stuff mm. so and I think Amazon is actually probably helped and has been very good for publishing for that reason but in any case what's interesting about bookish is their pitch is we only sell books on this site uh, you're not going to find um, uh, diapers or DVD players and so we're going to help you find the book you want more easily and by coming up with better, um, I don't know what it is, you know, algorithms to connect someone. I read this book. Here's a recommendation about another book you might like. Whether it's right or wrong, I think it's great that the publishing industry is trying to do this and opening up another channel. Mm. Um, you said Amazon provides a great service to readers. It'd be interesting to hear from any booksellers in the audience about what you think about the effect of Amazon. Uh, ben, you're an author as well as a publisher. What about, um, is Amazon good for authors? Amazon is, is amazing for authors, um, on the face of it, I will say. Um, for me, obviously, Amazon, most of the uh, bulk of my revenue comes from Amazon, um, which is great, obviously, for me. Uh, like I said, I'm getting, you know, they provide me with 70% of those, of those sales as well, which is great in terms of revenue and profits. Um, I think they've been a huge help for authors. They've empowered authors, uh, especially with the launch of the KDP platform, which I think was the first. You know, they were the first to really uh, do that, create that back end where any author can come in, just drop a file, click publish, um, and have it on a store, and a huge store within minutes. I mean, they were the first people to do it. Um, so you know, I think authors have this, you know, they hold Amazon in this kind of, um, you know, this, this, you know, see a halo around the kind of the A um, logo, almost as if, you know, you, thanks to you, I can now be a published author and achieve my dream. To an extent, that's true. But then I think, again, being in the industry for a while, you start to see the back end of Amazon and actually you know, start to examine the cogs of the big machine. And you see that they, uh, for, all of their kind of, uh, for all the work that they've done to empower authors, are still a business, are still mm-hmm. a huge conglomeration, and are obviously, you know, in, as any business, interested in profit, <coughs> loss, and, and market share. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, when Nook came along, as was talking about the... Um, when Barnes & Noble launched the Nook platform, Puppet, um, a couple of years, I think it's two or three years later than KDP, um, suddenly Amazon is very concerned with exclusivity, yeah. you know, almost bribing their authors with the KDP Select program, saying, you know, if you stay with us, you know, we can give you better royalties in these countries, you can be part of the, uh, the owner's lending library, and you can have a share of a, of a monthly fund. So you're looking at kind of, you know, they're very suddenly eager to keep the authors and keep them on board and keep them with one you know, uh, one platform, uh, which, to be honest, I think yeah, exclusivity in the world of self-publishing is actually a bad point. So mm. you start to see the fact they are a business, and I think it's important to keep that in mind, the fact they are, you know, they're not <coughs> thinking of the author, really. They're actually just thinking of, you know, how can we get more market share? How can mm. we be the competitor? How can we be number one? Okay, do you want to add anything about Amazon before we... Yeah, I mean, there, there are other places to buy books, but let's try and keep it that way. <laughs> Um, okay, that's a very good moment to um, take some questions. Anybody? Yes, at the front here. Um, um, I work in digital media, and um, one of the things, well, one of the topics which I think quite a lot about is um, how publishing is set to evolve, um, seeing as there's a certain amount of society you feel that all content should be free going forwards and I was wondering how you feel well, what your views on that are uh, yeah I've got kick this one off um, I come from a music background originally um, I actually studied music rather than anything to do with literature or fiction um, 
fire our education. So, I mean, looking at the music industry versus the book industry, there are huge similarities. Uh, I think the only thing that really separates them is time. I think you know people are saying the music industry is at, well, book industry is about two or three years behind the music industry. Um, so you kind of looking at if you look forward to that, you're thinking of streaming things like Spotify platforms, where basically you pay ten pound a month and get unlimited content, you know, direct to your mobile or direct to your device, whatever. Um, do I think it sh- should be free from a music perspective? Yes, I'm a huge consumer of music, um, as I am with books. As an author, putting that model back in, how do I get paid? That's the first <laughs> question. Um, I've got rent to pay. I've got petrol to put in my car. That's the thing. You know, that's the first. Um, that's the first thing I think of. Spotify. I've spent a lot of time trying to f- figure out how to actually pay the artist. I think they're getting around to the point where actually solving both issues of I want unlimited content and I want to be paid. You know, from the two camps of the you know the author slash musician and consumer, um, they're getting forward to actually solving that. And if they do with books, you know, if they can learn, if there is say like a you know a, a book Spotify in the wings somewhere, and it you know it works, absolutely, I think yeah. I think s- I think someone has to pay the bills in order to support the site, and so if you are offering free books, then somehow there's some revenue that's supporting that. And if it's not through the sale of books, then the users of that site are then no longer the customer but are probably the thing that's being sold in some way. That's what we've seen with other free delivery sites. And so I think the key question is, what's the fairest way to cover the costs of publishing? One way, uh, there's a traditional model where the publisher takes those costs themselves, shares the revenue with um, uh, authors through a royalty. That's one approach. I'm sure there are other approaches that are viable, but you still there has to be something in order to um, pay authors. And if even if authors are willing to make it free, pay for that server space and uh, for the delivery and update of that site. But uh, that's because I'm the stodgy uh, <laughs> industry guy who's thinking about the beans and the beans. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm quite conflicted about this because I think our academic work should be freely available to other academics, to students, to retired academics, to the general public, if they should ever want to read our stuff. Um, but I, I actually come from a trade publishing background rather than academic publishing background. And, you know, I know the behind the scenes there and I know what the good that some of that money is used for, though, to be honest, quite a lot of it was used for parties and stuff, <laughs> to be absolutely fair. So, you might find that a good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I quite enjoyed it, but you know, whether you could really justify all of those costs, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think you know there, there are ways in which um, um, the publishing industry will not be able to prevent the demand for free, but I suppose what you've got to do is try and work around that, and you know the, the kind of whole. <coughs> Do you still are you still going to be able to get people to buy the beautiful material object alongside the free digital edition for certain types of publication? Yes, there obviously will be. I think an enduring purpose of that, and people understand. For, you know, people are quite happy to spend lots of money on trainers, for example, because that's you know. And so there's a similar kind of argument happening there, and I suppose it's, it's for publishers and, and authors as well to, to be smart and savvy and try and think about ways of, of, of monetizing it for the, you know, the quite proper costs that are there in publishing things effectively. But it's a tricky one. Thanks. Uh, yes, there's a question, uh, question there. Um, just a reminder, I forgot to say this. Um, 
Can you ask questions rather than make speeches? That was a question. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I just realised that I was meant to say that before uh, before you ask the question. Yes. So, question over here, please. Um, Dr. Keith Postler. Um, I'm declaring an academic interest, and I'm a lecturer in marketing. Um, what um, Ben is your business model that adds the greater value you capture as opposed to legacy publishing? Sorry, said the last bit again. I'm still. Um, what, what is your business model? You claim you have 70% more, was mm-hmm. it, than um, you, the other models maybe that you uh, had before. What is it that you do to do that? How do you capture this extra value? Oh, no, as it's the, that extra value actually comes from the platforms that I publish with. So Amazon, as part of their, you know, having, you know, file formats with zero unit cost, no deli- well, negligible delivery charge. They don't have to pay warehousing fees as you do with uh, physical units they actually afford the author better royalties. Um, so the business model is actually given to me, you know, as a sense. They actually provide that and say, instead of the traditional model where we would give you a royalty, uh, sorry, we would give you an advance and then provide you smaller royalties in exchange for your rights, I actually keep most of my rights, um, give, you know, uh, publish directly, do the hard work myself and get higher royalties in a long-tail method. So that's my business model there. Um, yeah. I think there was a question at the back here. Yeah. Uh, Nick McDonald. Um, I'm... He was actually projecting quite effectively. <laughs> I used to be able to project across the whole old theatre during student union meetings. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm worried about the level of innovation in publishing, but particularly on the academic side, but more generally. And there are just three areas that I think it would be interesting to see more innovation in, and I wonder if Damon and uh, our other panellists could shed some light on this. One is sharing references to books, which seems pretty straightforward, um, with the context in which they uh, exist. So there are services like Goodreads and Library thing, which do a pretty good job of that. But actually, if I want to see a book and find all the reviews of it, there's no service I know of that can do that. And for academic publishing, that seems very important. The second is, is annotation and commenting. And we all know that marginal notes are a key aspect of intellectual life. Um, uh, the Kindle does that relatively well Read Mill does it well too but there seems to be no model really whereby we can share our marginal notes in, 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 in the academy or beyond which would seem to be valuable um, whether there's a business model in that I'm not quite sure and the third is references you know, references are the, the lifeblood of academic publishing and Nature you may know had a service called Conatea which ran for five or six years has closed down recently we have things like Delicious, which are more public ways of sharing references and so on, but there seems to be no traction in that area. Are these just things which actually aren't important, or has no one managed to find a way that they can add value to their academic or other publishing business through them, or are we just sort of lacking the imagination to innovate in, in academic and other areas of publishing? I think that's a really interesting question, and it is a challenge that publishers need to, and I think actually are starting to take on board. Interestingly, the free service Mendeley was recently uh, taken over by Elsevier, who saw a value in being able to, uh, and Mendeley is a service like the um, uh, Conatea, which allows authors to collect and annotate citations. It was free, and so many people bought into it and started using it because uh, it was a service like uh, the other examples are Zotero is one of them, where you can collect your uh, citations, share them, annotate them, and it's separate from different publishing platforms so that you can, um, it, uh, you're not annotating within the world of um, 
Springer or uh, uh, whoever it is, Oxford University Press, it's uh, but uh, anyway, um, Elsevier, probably uh, the, the, um, when we talk about publishers making profit, the, the publisher who comes up uh, most frequently has bought this service, which was free, and they had no way to monetize it, and they were looking for sellers after having gotten a large number of users. They see some value in it, and I think that other publishers will find ways to do this as well. I mean, I think that this is a, a really serious issue, and if academic publishers, I mean... Uh, really, at the end of the day, are, uh, some are publicly traded looking for profit, but uh, others are believe they're, um, that they are providing a service that helps research. Uh, this is something that's needed by researchers, and I think it's going to happen more. Uh, <coughs> tools like this will be created. Um, I don't, it's not easy to do, though, because most publishers are set up to publish books, and so these kinds of things are yeah. hard to set up. But yes, I think that's probably likely uh, to be more involved. And I can say from uh, OUP's side, we're interested, although I don't, you know, it's a big shift in our business to do. Yeah, it's a a really interesting question. I suppose your response, you know, most publishers are set up to publish books. Kind of, if you think of it from an academic's point of view, most academics and the structure that academics work within are set up for us to publish books or scholarly articles. And if we start to do things because the technology should be able to enable us to do things like... um, show more how our research connects with other researchers to develop communities and environments to show, I suppose, the back end of our research. How are we going to be rewarded for that as well? And so I think there's, there's an interesting question there about you know, the, the technologies. I'm sure, you know, available to do all sorts of interesting things, but what, what are, thing, are there things that need to give in order for that to be able to happen successfully? And I suppose one question I'd, I'd ask myself about my advocacy of open access and a, and a green rather than a gold model of open access, is that, is that going to deliver the kinds of exciting possibilities that we might want to see as academics? You know, would, would, can we do that? Is that possible? Or actually, are we better working with publishers to enable us to do that and I think that's a really interesting conversation to, to have in the future there you go, we can be pals again I know you attacking this from an academic point of view but from a friction point of view um, you know, there is less need um, for you know, you know, writing the margins references and notes and things like that but it's still something that's being explored I think a lot of the innovation in the, in the fiction side of, the, of, uh, of the publishing at the moment um, and also going forward to kind of you know, using technology is actually centred around what ebooks lack versus print. So, you know, you, with, a, with a print book, you can take out pen and scribble and deface it however you want. You can't do that with an ebook, really. Uh, and then, well, you can, but then you can't pass it on, you know, and, and have it set in. So, I think, you know, there's a lot of innovation in terms of apps of, uh, that can do that at the moment. One is by Kobo, which is Kobo um, Author. Um, and basically, what it enables the you know, reader and the author to do is leave little notes and almost breadcrumbs via the app and via a mobile device. So, um, readers can come in and see what the author says about this. It's almost like a, a director's commentary, like you get on a DVD. But it also enables social reading, which is kind of a new concept as well, which you know, readers can come in and leave their own notes, etc. So I think that's happening on our side as well, on the fiction side. But is there a need for it? Uh, maybe it's innovation before a need. You know, maybe it's too soon and too early, but it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Just to pick up on that point, I mean, so in academic publishing, we often talk about how journals have made the transition to digital well in advance of books, and books are still finding their way. But interestingly, uh, 
about one-third of the journals that are published. And in uh, the U.S. alone, there's over 750,000 journals that are available across various disciplines. Only one-third of these are digital only. Uh, and, and then the other two-thirds are either digital and print or just print. And so uh, the difficulty when it comes to innovating is uh, we will innovate, we are innovating, but at the same time we're uh, maintaining the old systems. And so uh, it's a real pressure on publishing because if we're going to serve, then we need to serve people who want the print version. We need to serve academic societies which want the print version. This is just with journals. But we also need to serve... um, uh, readers and researchers who want it digitally, and so anyway, it makes it a little slower than it might be in another case. Anyone else? Yes, in the front row, and then we'll continue. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm a postdoctoral fellow, so fairly new to academic pu- uh, publishing, but. I wonder what you think some of the the key issues or unintended consequences might be associated with offloading the cost of publishing from the consumer to the author or even the funding bodies in Mm. academic literature. I guess that's a reference to some of the recommendations of the Finch report. Yeah, and I I think this is, you know, it's, it's all very well being an advocate of open access, but the complexity of that and what that means is... Uh, legion really Um, and certainly you could see that with the um, vitriolic response actually of some academics to the recommendations of the Finch report Um, um, and certainly if you're uh, as the Finch report recommended a gold version of open access which is an author pay to publish version so the payment switches from the consumer to the producer. And obviously you can see that that could be very, very problematic. Um, If you have a big research grant that has publication costs within it, um, you're okay, you can get your stuff published. Um, If you are, and this has particularly been contested by scholars in the humanities, you're not working with a research grant at all, Where does that publication subvention come from? Um, Does it then mean, um, the academics who've kicked back very strongly about this, that it's our universities that are taking the decisions about what to fund to get published? And sometimes our institutions make decisions which aren't the decisions we would want them to make. You know, and certainly... There's been uh, much anxiety about the idea that um, academic management will be then making decisions, the gatekeeping decisions. And actually some academics think they'd rather the publishers make those decisions, actually. And that can be very, very problematic if that's the model that you go for. If you go for a green model, um, i.e. not paying to publish and not paying to purchase, to, to consume, obviously the big challenge is how on earth does that get funded? You know, how does all of the... Um, and I, I absolutely agree with everything that Damon said, you know, the complexity of the systems, you know, that the academic publishing understood and got into digital so much more quickly than trade publishing. Um, you know, how did, did those kind of very 
clever systems, how can you start to build the kind of innovations and innovative ways of disseminating scholarly communications? You know, where's, where's that money going to come from? Because the university sector obviously isn't awash with cash. Um, so I don't know if I've got the answers to that at all, but there's certainly some of the challenges. I think one of the interesting things is you look at one of the criticisms of the original RCUK um, proposal, and that was that uh, UK universities were going to have to, or the funding council was going to have to pay for gold open access, and so there was funding from that. And then universities were going to have to pay subscriptions to journals because there are going to be publications from scholars outside the UK, so the journals wouldn't be um, purely uh, open access. But I think that, and so um, there was just there was just a net. Um, the university was just going to have to spend a whole lot more money and basically spend doubly. But I think what that brings to the fore is that uh, universities have paid for the publication of academics' works in various different ways, although not obvious ways. So, uh, for instance, um, before the rise of big deals in journals where big journal packages were being sold to uh, university libraries, most monographs were being bought by the university library. So you could make an argument that the library was um, archiving, paying for and archiving scholarly research. And university presses were um, not making any sort of surplus and were being subsidized by universities. And in recent years, they, um, university presses can no longer, uh, are expected to at least break even for their universities. And so I think the university system has, in one way or another, <coughs> funded research in many, uh, uh, so that it didn't have to be a consumer product. And discussions about gold open access and authors paying is just a discussion about, um, in some ways, and I, it, not to say it's completely it, but in some, some ways it's just talking about where we're funding research, where is that funding going to come from? And, and uh, as different parts of the university are being squeezed, the library or the university press, then it's just they're saying we can't pay for it, and maybe these other guys can. Uh, just, uh, Not sure how reassuring an answer that is for someone <laughs> at the beginning of their <laughs> academic publishing career. Ben, we've been talking about academic publishing. I mean, are, are there versions of the problems that have just been described in um, fiction and fantasy publishing, or are there distinctive challenges that you face? In um, to be honest, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the worlds are quite far apart, I mean, mm. in, in terms of that. I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to kind of make a, you know, the subjects that we were just talking about there, it's hard to make a, um, a correlation between the two, mm. really. It's, uh, the subject, I mean, the main thing, like, like I said, is just just quality, I think, at the moment we're just mm. looking at. So that, that's the main challenge for us. So I think main, a lot of publishers, sorry, self-publishers, are just focusing on um, quality and mm. just making sure we, we can survive of the of saturation. That's the main problem for us at the moment. So, so there was a question. Oh, yeah, you want no, to I was just about to say, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a kind of different sort of an analogy, but there's an interesting question, I suppose, in the world of fiction or poetry publishing, if you do have ever any um, cultural policy funding going into it. I mean, it's very hard to make people buy poetry. Mm. And it's often, that's the sort of thing that Arts Council England or Creative mm. Scotland will fund. And I suppose there's an interesting question there. Mm. If, you know, the public purse is going into making this stuff available, but then you still have to buy it, mm. actually. And you think, well, how, how does that work in terms of an open access argument, actually? And there's a kind of funny sort of analogy, and it doesn't quite fit there, actually. But you just think there's, there's no kind of mandate if you're sort of published by the Arts Council that the stuff then has to be available, mm. unless it's specifically, you know, we're making this interesting yeah. project or free project or whatever it is. I think crowdfunding is one of the things mm. that's really coming into which isn't obviously there, there are no councils and it is using 
public money in a sense, but it's mm. it's it's, it's uh, gathered from individuals and uh, at their own will. Um, it's it's kind of it's something that a lot of self-publishers are doing at the moment because I mean it can cost quite a lot of money to do self-publishing <coughs> or to self-publish uh, a piece of work, be it fiction or non-fiction. Um, it can. I, I published my first book for only about four hundred dollars, so you know that it's easy to actually spend quite a few thousand um, on it as well. So obviously a lot of people search for funding using crowdfunding sources such as Kickstarter um, or for kind of moving into transmedia or multimedia um, looking to kind of take their book from a book and turn it into something like a graphic novel which um, I actually did uh, the last couple of days, um, the last couple of weeks rather. So I mean I think yes it's, it's, we are searching for funding for certain projects but it doesn't come from a, a council I think. It's, it's more yeah, it's using uh, the, the technology at our, at our disposal. I think it's really interesting about the poetry example is the poetry that's created and published is the direct result of the funding. But in cases of scientific research, the research itself is not what's published. The, what's published is an account of it. And in fact, the research that's been produced is probably patented. And at least in the U.S., universities make a tremendous amount of money on those patents and so do the scientists that create the research. And in fact, the government wants that to be an incentive for them to do more research. And so uh, in scientific work, we're talking about making the report on that uh, research, not the research itself, mm. available. And that's the question over open access. And I think it's an interesting one, but the two things are often conflated because people talk about the value of the scientific research. In the case of poetry, it's, um, those two differences are collapsed. And so it's, it's really interesting mm. to think about it. Yes, so sorry, it was a question in your fourth, fifth row. Um, ben, I think you touched on the similarities between publishing uh, books and the music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering, given that sort of reading a book is far more of an undertaking than listening to a music <coughs> album, would consumers not be more sort of selective in the types of books they read and therefore would that kind of analogy work in the sense that mm. you're going to, you know, be more methodic in which books you read as opposed to which music you listen to because listening to a CD is much easier than, say, reading a novel. Absolutely. I think uh, it's it's a good question whether that streaming model or the Spotify model, which we mentioned earlier, um, or indeed just a a general free model, would work. Um, I did a free giveaway a couple of uh, of months ago, in fact, uh, last summer, of my first uh, first book, The Written. And it was kind of a marketing ploy to just see how many downloads I could get. And obviously then, because the sequel is very closely linked with the the first book... um, hopefully drive sales of the second. Guaranteed that probably 50% or 60% of the people who downloaded my first book have still yet to read it, because, I mean, nothing to do with my book, but it's just the fact that if it's free, grab it while you can, keep it on a Kindle. You know, you've got you know, cloud storage, or you've got, um, you've got large storage on a Kindle anyway. The book files are, are not that big. You can just have an incredible library and not actually need to read it. Um, or at least it'll take you a while to get around to it. So I think you're right. I think it could be that there can be or will be a struggle to see if that yeah the, the, the rate of consumption will affect a model like that, um, I think it just it will depend on how per, how fast the individual can read. Um, you know the, the demand. I mean the thing is they say one one in four Americans now have an e-reader. So what we could argue is the fact that e-readers and uh, e-books in general have actually promoted reading. So um, you know. You could argue also that the, the amount of books out there, the amount of genres will actually be spread over this larger readership as well. So I think it could work. It could be a challenge, but I think, yeah, it's just we'll, we'll need to basically implement something and then see if it does. Yeah. Okay. 
I, I always think it's really interesting the, to try and think about what the differences are between the music industry and the publishing industry. And I suppose one of them, which is kind of reflecting on your question, is, is this. Imagine if you walk into um, Topshop and all of a sudden, um, instead of deciding you want to turn heel because you know, one direction is playing, Will Self is coming out. <laughs> or you go into the next shop and there's Hilary Mantel. Or you go into the next shop and there's Fifty Shades of Grey, goddammit. You think, yeah, there's, there's something different about how we consume literature, actually, whatever type of literature it is, to how we consume it. Doesn't, it maybe it'd be quite a nice thing to do on you know, World Book Night or something. We're just kind of confronted and bashed by words coming at us all of the time. But that's not reading, is it? That's... Mm. It raises the issue is what will the story become? Will mm. audiobooks suddenly you know, become the new thing in terms of um, how people like to actually consume and consume a story? So, I mean, we're looking at the moment in terms of new technology and, and asking the question, what will a book become? Um, you're looking at kind of a multi-format file. Who, you know, who knows what that will be, but it will be an audiobook, it will be a graphic novel and a traditional print book all in one, and it will change with, the, um, with you know, real time to how the person in possession of the file wants to read it. So, for instance, you could step onto the tube, um, have it on your device, read it in text or graphic novel, and as soon as you slip it into your pocket and plug your headphones in, it will change to the audiobook. And so, I mean, there are apps kind of being designed and already out there that do that. Maybe that'll change. Maybe, you know, we will walk in and have Fifty Shades of Grey playing in your local top shop. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, maybe that's... that's Damon, well. did you have uh, anything to? No, just I mean the the <coughs> this just reminds me that uh, publishing is just one point in the journey that the ideas that someone is writing um, takes, and so someone writes a uh, scholarly argument, and that argument takes on a life of its own, and the published piece is just a record of it in time. It reminds me of a friend of mine who likes downloading uh, audiobooks, but not professional ones, ones where people are doing amateur readings of uh, books, and he's even got particular readers that he likes to hear when he's in the, the car. And uh, it's, it's a sort of the life of that, uh, that published work that goes way beyond the publisher, and is a great thing. And if you can um, pitch it into that um, larger ecosystem of the use of information, then publishers, whether they're self-publishing or um, a traditional one, have done their bit, and we aren't responsible all the way through. And I think that's what's disturbing about the idea of a um, reselling an e-book. There's just a point at which you have to let go and uh, <laughs> let people do what they will with um, uh, what it is you're publishing, because it's just uh, ideas, and then they go on and uh, live their own life. Mm. Yeah. Anyone else? There must be. Um, yes, in the middle, and then we'll come to you. Hi. Um, what I thought was really interesting is actually the uh, the way in which uh, people who are published in more conventional ways um, are recognised with different accolades, whether it's the Man Booker or uh, the Cost Booker Award. And I think um, my question is basically about what we think the future is for online people who are published online because um, again when you were talking about quality control I thought this is one of the ways in which as readers people are used to assess quality mm-hmm. you know I mean I might have never read Hilary Mantel but I hear her name and I'm like oh she won that award let me buy her book now mm. um, and it might not, still might not be of interest to me but because I've heard that mm. or know, know about that that's the reason I'll buy her book and I think it's kind of somewhat a shame that you have this kind of 
whole online base mm-hmm. of writers who are also just as good, but they kind of miss out on all that comes with an accolade, um, including sales, because once your name's out there, you're making, I guess, a, a, an incre- there's an increase in sales automatically, and I just wondered what your views were on those, especially being a fiction writer as well. This is the quality question. Uh, well, yeah, and you're absolutely right, and it's one of the big challenges for uh, self-publishers at the moment is, well, it's, it's an actual marketing challenge, is how do we kind of create those sales when we can't have access to accolades or awards. And it's actually quite a sad fact that, for instance, uh, if you're self-published, you're automatically you know, not banned, so to speak, but you're not allowed to enter such awards, and a lot of the, uh, that's true of a lot of other awards as well. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's not, I mean, I actually like publishers, I think they do a great job. Um, just to put it out there. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the publishing industry, and obviously self-publishing wouldn't be here without them. Um, but it does seem, you know, when you look at these awards, it is, it does look like quite a close-knit community. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the award ceremony, the award uh, councils come to the publishers, and they will go around and see who who, who can submit, etc. And they just don't even look at self-publishers. And there are plenty of self-publishers out there who are probably very worthy of a Man Booker Prize or other prizes, and could probably write Hilary Mantel under the table. Um, so, but the point, the point is either don't know about them or they're not allowed you know, to, to be edited. So it becomes a marketing challenge. And instead we turn to ratings, we turn to reviews, we turn to SEO, PPC, if you have the, if the budget for it. And you kind of create your own accolade, which is just popularity um, and, and good reviews and, and word of mouth, which is obviously still the, the most powerful form of marketing there is. Mm-hmm. So I think that's it for us. But I think they're, they're increasing. I mean, it seems to me on the outside, I'm not uh, an author, I'm a uh, shepherd for other authors, but it seems to me that there are. Um, uh, it's a great. It's a great time actually to go around traditional publishers because what the traditional publisher wants you to do is um, uh, build a Facebook community about around your publishing to start <coughs> tweeting early to do to basically build your community and that and then the traditional publisher can kind of um, uh, uh, help once you've got that base. But actually, what the traditional publisher is benefiting from are these kind of direct author to their audience communication means that could only take place before through a reading where you actually had to be in the room. And so uh, I think those traditional channels are useful and they help. They definitely help you reach a wider audience. But I don't, I think more than ever before, I mean, this is, just to come back to the point you had made before about uh, breaking down barriers, there really are ways to find a reader without going through the traditional publisher. And find them in a very intimate way that wasn't available uh, in, in the past. So, mm. I mean, I have kind of direct experience of this as a literary prize judge, actually, because I'm a prize judge for the Saltire Society Literary Awards, which are prizes for Scottish writers or writers based in Scotland, which is obviously not necessarily the same thing, or writers writing about some kind of Scottish content. And um, we just this year actually kind of tried to confront head-on this question of um, do we accept digital-only publications um, and do we to what extent how much do we interrogate who's sending us books in and whether they are a publisher or a self-publisher and um, I have a PhD student who's working on the the history of the awards so I got to do a little bit of phoning round of all of the big prizes to see what their current policies are in terms of um, the two things really and it's very clear with with, you know really big prizes like the man booker that you really obviously have to come from what's conceived of as a 
um, a conventional publisher, a traditional publisher. I suppose Saltar is slightly more open because um, the Scottish literary scene is small, it has lots of start-ups, and that's one of the ways in which interesting Scottish books get published, to be honest, you know. Um, so we're a bit more kind of open to that. But then there's a huge difficulty. Of, you know, we're already reading 100 books a year, but it's not 100 books a year. It's 100 books in three months, and it makes you feel sick, physically sick, <laughs> reading all of these books. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, how do other people get into these modes of recommendation? Shouldn't they be considered for what's supposed to be, you know, the most prestigious prize of that year? And then you get confronted with the practicalities of it, which there's never a reason to stop trying to find a solution to it and making sure, you know, the best, the most interesting writers get to, get to it. Yeah, I do think we've reached peak Mantel as far as um, literary <laughs> prize getting is concerned. Um, there was a question at the front here, and then we'll come to you. Uh, so you talked about gatekeeping, kind of the role of the consumer in gatekeeping, and I was wondering about uh, if you could kind of comment on the role of, uh, you kind of touched on that, but search engine optimization and algorithms and mm-hmm. how that's kind of mm-hmm. changed the game. I think both academic publishing and regular publishing mm-hmm. and just how it changes how people are finding books. For example, I know there was an example, I think it was last year or the year before, where an author was actually paying for Amazon reviews and kind of boosting his ratings. So, yeah. yeah. So just how you could comment on how that's changing. I think um, sock property is actually really interesting. I'm glad someone brought that up. Um, makes me boil inside because um, you know word of mouth as I said is one of the most powerful forms of marketing that authors have and we do rely on it a lot and then to suddenly undermine that with the fact that you know you can pay for reviews you can fake reviews you can set up a hundred thousand different accounts and be a catfish and write your own reviews and oh my book was amazing to suddenly undermine that and create the mistrust you know the idea of mistrust in, in, the, in the consumer is just, is just irritating and, and infuriating to be honest because that's what we rely on. So um, I think, yeah, it's reviews um, and SEO, like you said, and, uh, and, and PPC. Uh, it's, it's strange because we're not authors anymore. We are authors, marketing gurus, social media junkies, graphic designers, editors, web designers. You know, the, the, the role of author has just expanded so much. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Damon, in your remarks, you talked about OUP having a discoverability um, unit. How does that work? Uh, we just um, what if well, anyway it's it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think about the best way of going uh, approaching this there when you look at um, uh, investigations about how scholars <coughs> enter into for instance journals you see many people are using specialized uh, uh, abstracting and indexing services but most pe- many people are coming from a Google search and landing on an individual article. And uh, that being the case, we just felt that we have to understand that better and we need to learn those skills and it's part of our responsibility to disseminate our author's work as widely as possible to get good at it. And uh, we couldn't get good at it until we got some people to around who knew what they were doing and start investigating it and uh, what to do. And so. Um, I'm sure we're not the only publisher that does this. We have our own publishing platforms, so um, uh, SEO questions are more important to us. But it's just, I think the publishing toolkit is changing. And publishers that don't take that seriously risk becoming irrelevant. Mm. And so uh, 
It's a bid for relevancy. <laughs> and really, again, I mean, it just goes back to a service to authors and disseminating their work as widely as possible. Yeah, I mean, the, the example you're referring to of, um, I think there was a company in the States that was in particular, um, there was a fantastic New York Times piece about it where they, they interviewed the guy that was running this company. And it was kind of like the new telephone sex workers, the people who were writing these reviews. They were obviously, you know, stay-at-home moms who were kind of penning reviews on a book. They had a quick look at a book and did another one, and then they did another one. It's an absolutely fascinating sub-industry that's been developed out of it, which just I, I, find, I do find absolutely fascinating as an analyst of the market. I find it deeply troubling <laughs> as a consumer or producer of that market so that it goes on. But yeah, definitely, you're thinking, what the hell is that all about? Go and read that article, because it's really, really interesting. It is troubling, but I do find that people will ask you to do that. They'll say, hey, will you write a review of my book on Amazon because uh, I need more stars or something like mm-hmm, that. So mm-hmm. There's a benign form, and then the kind yes. of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm an international publishing as a literary editor. I still get emails from authors suggesting reviewers, of their book, um, which I always politely ignore. There was a question at the back. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm sorry I was um, a little late, so I hope I'm not treading over the ground that you had in the first 10 minutes that I missed. I'm really sorry about that. But I'm, um, I mean, I'm interested. I've worked in magazine publishing for quite a long time. And, you know, that's, I lost my job in the recession because of the advertising problem. You know, there is no revenue now for a lot of very good established journals because the revenue is gone. Um, and I, I was here on, um, earlier in the week in the festival and there was um, uh, Jerry Broughton from Queen Mary talking about his book, the, tw- the, the, um, the, history of the, the History of the World in 12 Maps. And he was talking about the perniciousness of Google Earth and Google Maps and saying that Google basically, as well as a lot of online free content providers at the moment, are moving, in his view, definitively towards a pay-per-view model. And this terrifies me as someone... You know, who spent their youth in the Charing Cross Road in the second-hand bookshops. The Charing. I don't have a Kindle. I don't want a Kindle, because I want to have the thing. And as far as I'm concerned, Kindle or Amazon or whoever can whip off that thing. They can. They own the rights and they can take it from me, even though I've paid a fee for it. I don't own it, as far as I understand it. And I think this has real. I'm being a bit dystopian here and provocative deliberately, but I think there's a real serious issue here, and there's a big tension between. The fact that Ben is talking about, you know, basically costs have fallen to zero, you know, within the context of us having an infinite infrastructure and whatever. And the, the World Wide Web model in, initially is, is based on tax fund, taxpayer dollars in CERN delivering this incredible thing, you know, Tim Berners-Lee's vision, that we, we fund this because it's a public good. And when you're talking about university research, we used to fund it with tax dollars because it was a public benefit. And I find it now really worrying, and I'm just working towards my question, but how, how dystopian is this future? Am I, a reali- am I a pessimist realist? Because I don't trust Amazon. I've had a terrible customer experience with Amazon. I've never used them again. Um, but I, you know, I, I just don't believe that these, like you say, these companies are not necessarily benign. They're not, they're not universities. They're not providing a public good. Their, their number one priority is profit. And that's not the same as disseminating knowledge and all the, public, all the public good that we have grown up with in this kind of golden age of the beginning of the internet. 
So I wondered if you could speak to that. Is my paranoia justified? <laughs> well, as, 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 <laughs> what, as I said, there are we other do... places to do your shopping, and I meant, I meant that quite... What? There are other places to do your shopping. I know, and I, I don't really, use I really Amazon, but so shopping. many people do. Yeah. In the end, we end up yeah. with a monopoly, yeah? It's the way capitalism works. Yeah. We end up with monopolies. Yeah. Well, I think it's definitely a risk, and it's one that would make publishers nervous too. We don't want to have to compete with Google, but uh, I, I think that means that makes it more incumbent on publishers to be uh, to think and act more in the digital sphere. But at the same time, as long as you want to buy a book, there are going to be plenty of publishers out there to make them. On my way over here, I wandered past some uh, in a cult bookshop, and I was walking through. They had. Uh, books devoted to witchcraft and uh, <laughs> other theories like that. And I thought, this is such a great place. And there was someone there really kind of hunched over, avidly looking at a book. And I thought, this person loves this story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just loves the smell of incense in here and the other things on the wall. And the experience of buying these books uh, wouldn't be the same on Amazon. And it made me feel very good about... Um, uh, book publishing and print, which again, it's, that's there. And so that will always be there. And then there is this new question about what's going on. And I think what you're talking about is uh, that sort of dystopian future is kind of risky. But I also think that um, there are enough people out there who want, don't want that to happen, that they're going to look for uh, other channels, whether uh, it's Ben Publishing directly through, I mean, it's not even <coughs> through Amazon, but through other sources as well. Mm -hmm. People will find ways to get through. So I, I just think that there's a certain aspect of the human spirit that would not allow for one company to take over all lines of communication. But I'm generally optimistic, and so... <laughs> <it might be> <coughs> I think um, a lot of people view Amazon as cybernet. Um, in terms of, you know, to draw on a Terminator analogy, I think they see it, it's going to become this kind of one, one that's brain somewhere that just controls the transactions. And I think that will never happen. I think, yeah, I think David's right. It's, there will always be that person who loves the smell of a book and will go down to their local indie bookstore uh, and sit there hunched over with a book on witchcraft or, or whatever it may be. That will always survive. And I always draw the analogy of vinyl. Um, you know, again, a music music industry analogy, but it's um, you know, vinyl's actually seen a resurgence in the last ten years, last five years. People are actually spending more money on buying. You know, they might have it on MP3, but they want the vinyl because you know, technology has made vinyl players um, that much better while retaining the original magic of them. Um, and I think you know that we can draw you know, um, uh, a comparison from that. I think people will always see a paperback and a hardback and want that on their shelf as, as something tangible because a Kindle, albeit the device is tangible, your library is. I think people do have that kind of slight fear in the back of their minds where they kind of go, actually, I'd like to see this. I'd like to feel it and smell it and have it on the shelf. So physical will never die out. Indie bookstores will never die out. Mainstream, maybe. Who knows? And Amazon won't take over the world. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, yeah, your fear is, yes, justified in part, but I think a full-on takeover by Amazon isn't. Um, I think that. No, I mean, I, I do wholeheartedly agree with you. I really do. But I think... Um, what I suppose is important to understand is the... Um, That's Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, first of all, the complicit role that publishers, and particularly the big trade publishers, had in building Amazon, actually, because they saw it as an amazing opportunity for getting books to people, which is exactly what Ben said when we began. You know, books are so available to us all because of Amazon. You know, 
I know Waterstones made it better back in the 80s, but it's so easy to get books into people's hands, and that has to be a good. And I think to understand why publishers were complicit in giving such big discounts to Amazon and helping Amazon corner so much of the print market, let alone the developments into the digital market, to understand how that developed and why publishers did it, because they wanted to retain the relevance of the book. You know, and that's why they did that. It, looking back on it, it seems like it was the wrong thing to do, but it's hard to criticise it, actually, when you understand that that's the purpose of it. I do think it's important as a consumer anyway, anywhere with any products to try and exercise as much knowledge and choice about that as you can. And there are other places where you can buy print books and there's other places where you can buy digital books as well. But, you know, it's, it's hard to, for people to inform themselves sometimes about that when they're making decisions. The information's out there, of course, but, but to, to do that, I think, is tricky to do. And I suppose, you know, those of us who kind of know a bit more about the industry, I do think have a bit of a responsibility to, you know, tell people about the other options and how things work. But I think it's also important to understand how actually clever Amazon are, and I mean both in a you know, scary, risky, dystopian way, but also the way in which they enabled us to start discussing books virtually via customer comments. You think, that's kind of cool, actually, isn't it, that we can all become little commenters. You know, we don't have to get published in the New Statesman in order to make a review. Our reviews probably aren't as good as those in the New Statesman, but it, ena- it, enables, <laughs> it enables us to do that. And they're, they're continually clever at things they do like that. You know, they've got smart people there who understand technology and how books might be part of our lives. And I think if we want to be, retain a publishing world outside of Amazon, we've got to be as inventive and in, as smart in terms of why t- we make this stuff relevant. And that's what will maybe help us be a bit more positive and utopian about it. So. I want to make just a very quick um, point and actually quite an, uh, an odd prediction almost in the fact that you know, people sense, the, you said you had a terrible customer experience with Amazon. Um, people will actually see that the fact that you know, they are a big machine, they are a, a faceless uh, platform and website um, is just there to you know, buy from. So I think we're actually going to see a rise in indie ebook stores. I reckon we'll start seeing, you know, it's, the technology is out there, and I think platforms will start to arise that enables you know anyone to start you know, creating their own website to sell books from. So I think you know that's going to start to um, to be more popular as well, where you get a <coughs> friendly approach. You can actually phone someone. Um, you know, you won't have to spend two days waiting for an email back from the Philippines. <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> But it's not just Amazon. I mean, Apple is pushing very hard to distribute uh, e-books, and so is Google. They have all sorts of ways to do it. And so um, I think there are other players that are competing who are non-traditional publishing players. That's probably a good thing. Uh, Amazon's market share has slipped as well. So we're, we're almost out of time, so I would like to invite the speakers, if they want to sum up... Um, I don't know if you... Have changed your minds on certain <laughs> topics in the course of this discussion. It's certainly interesting. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? You, anything you think we haven't talked about that we ought to have talked about? I, I think we should probably remind you to go out and maybe look at some of Ben's books. <laughs> That's going to be my point. <laughs> Keep reading. Dame, do you feel quite as embattled as you seem to? <laughs> at the beginning of this discussion? No, I, I don't. I mean, I, look, I think uh, everyone who's in publishing now and interested in a conversation about publishing loves books, loves reading, and so we're all in 
um, uh, kind of uh, uh, amicable company, and so I don't feel embattled. I just uh, setting up a good discussion. I think. Um, I think for me, you know what, you can be an author, you can be an academic, you can be a, a reader, writer, whatever. The point is that the ebook and the digital age, if you will, has increased reading. I'd say tenfold. It's, it's put books in, in places where books couldn't be. It's enabled people to you know read thousands of um, thousands of books. You know, or have a library around in their pocket. Uh, you know, it's promoted reading. That's the you know that's the that's the main point for me. That's the uh, the big thing to take away from this is the fact it's it's now easier to read than ever before, and easier to enjoy those stories. So I think that's a good thing. Well, thank you to Ben, Claire, and Damon. I'm sure you'd like to join me in thanking them. Thanks very much. Go and visit a bookshop.